Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship of Huntsville on this last Sunday of September. I don't know if you realize that. Next Sunday is October the 1st. It doesn't feel like that outside, but we are uh, moving along in the calendar regardless. If you are visiting with us this morning, we'd love for you to fill out a card. It's called the Connection Card. It should be underneath the seat in front of you. You can get it. You can fill it out with pen or pencil and drop it in the box in the back. You can also fill it out electronically with the QR code so you can take it home and fill it out there. But if you want to be a part of anything in the ministry or have prayer requests or any questions or whatever, you can also use that card for that. Um, all right, if you would, turn to John. This is the regular John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So um, not only is it October the 1st next week, but CF is moving on to verse 3 next week. Now, I have uh, told a, or guilty of telling a few jokes here and there about uh, CF taking a while to, to go through the, his, his teachings, but I thoroughly enjoy it, and I would want nothing less. And so the teaching that's occurred over the last however many months um, has been exceptional, and we've, we've been blessed by it. So... It's going to continue on, but if you're marking down a milestone in your calendar, mark it down for October the 1st because CF moves on to verse 3. But before that, he is still on verse 1 and 2, which is what we're reading this morning. John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for loving us for being who you are and making yourself known to us. And pray, Lord, that your spirit will move us and drive us to be a light in this world. And we just say this in your name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. As David said, we're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning. And we've only spent seven months on verses 1 and 2. So I haven't done it justice, so I'm going to try to finish it up this morning. But I still, it's the Word of God, you can't exhaust it. There's, there's more there than you can ever dig out of it, more there than we can ever know. When we get to heaven and we understand it completely, you're going to realize how deficient you know, life here on earth was with the teaching that we have. Because we can't plumb the depths of God, you can't understand it. There's always something that hinders you from knowing it. But we're going to look this morning because this book deals with the deity of Christ. If you saw the, uh, still up there, yeah, the deity of Christ. And the word deity means that he is God, okay? That he, he's, he's different, distinct, unique. Uh, and that's what the Gospel of John is all about. In John chapter 20, John gives us a summary statement of what this book is about. And he says, I'm sorry, in 20 verse 30, he says, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Now there's seven of them written in the book of John, miracle signs. And these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So this is one of those books where he actually tells you 
the purpose of the book, the reason for the book, is to declare the deity of Jesus Christ. So everything in the book is going to point to that. And we spent the last seven months looking at the works that only God could do. Jesus did those. And we looked at the attributes of God, which only God possesses to the fullest extent. And in seeing that, you see a picture of who God is. And you see that Jesus is the visible representation, the full revelation of all that God is. And that's what the Bible is. The Bible is the revelation of God. God revealing himself to mankind. To where we have a clear picture of who God is and how God operates. And so we're going to look this morning at John's intro to the book and what he says about it. We've looked at verse 1, looked at verse 2 in a limited sense. We're going to pull them both together today and take a close look at both of them to where we can better understand it. So let's have a word of prayer and then we'll proceed. Father, we come this morning and we thank you, God, for all that you've granted us, for the many blessings we have in this life, for your goodness toward us. And we pray for this time of study, Father, that you would open our minds and hearts to your truth. Help us to comprehend that truth and put it to work in our life to better live and serve you in all that we do. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You read your text there. It says, in the beginning was the word. All right. And you see that word word. You think, well, what is a word? A word is nothing more than an audible or written expression of thought. That's what it is. A word is an audible or a written expression of thought. But when the Greeks used the word word, the word that they used there is the word lagos. And we're going to put that on the screen for you. Where it says, in the beginning was the word. If you were to bracket that word word in the Greek text, that word is lagos. And to the Greek, lagos was the impersonal, abstract principle of reason and order in the universe. As they used here in this text, it is just what I say on the screen there, is it is an expression of thought behind the object. So it's more than just saying a word. It is the full concept or understanding or comprehension of all that is embodied in that. And when John says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he was in the beginning with God. He reveals to us who the word is, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we know there's only been one that has become flesh, that took on a human body. And that one is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the word. He, he is the Lagos of God. He fully reveals all that God is. When you look at the life of Jesus Christ and the works of Jesus Christ, they give you a clear understanding of who God is and all that God does. This same idea of Lagos was used in the Septuagint. And I give, maybe help you have a excuse me, a better understanding of what it means. But in the Septuagint, in the Septuagint, all the Septuagint is, it is a Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew word. 
Okay, so if you took the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, and you went and looked in the Septuagint, the Septuagint would be a Greek translation of that Hebrew text. And in that text, it talks about the Ten Commandments. And what it uses there is it refers to the Ten Commandments as the Dexa Laga. Go ahead and put that up there. Dexa Laga. And Dexa Laga means ten words. It's where we get our word Decalogue. And the Decalogue means the ten words, which are the Ten Commandments. Now, we know for a fact that when you read the Ten Commandments, there's more than ten words there. There's, there's way more than ten words there. But what it's saying is, this is the full expression of the ten words that God wants you to know. It is a summary of the 613 laws that Israel had. Turn in your Bible, if you would, to Exodus 20. Exodus 20, we'll look at the 10 words. Dexalaga. And we'll look at the first one, okay? And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. That's word one right there. But see what this is, this gives you the full expansion of what that means. So what I want you to see is that when the Bible says logos, it's not just meaning word. It means all that that word embodies, all that it entails, all that is associated with it. And you could go through, go to verse 12 of Exodus 20. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or, or his wife or his servants or any of his possessions. And so all those things add up to be the 10 words of God. The 10 words of God reveal the character of God. The law of Israel, all 613 commandments, revealed the character of God. What is God's standard? You, know, you hear a lot of people say, you'll tell them something about God, and they say, well, I just don't think God's like that. And everyone has an opinion of what God is like or what God should do. And, and it's important to understand everyone has an understanding of God, but almost everyone's understanding of God is distorted due to the nature of man. Man's mind is affected by sin, and so we distort what God is like. We also try to make God like a person, or more specifically, like us. And that is idolatry. That is not a, a proper understanding of God. So what God does is he gives us his logos. He gives us his word to show us who he truly is, to reveal to you and me who he really is. And so God, God begins here through the author John, and he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, you note here where it says, in the beginning, you've heard that somewhere before. 
And where you have heard that is in the book of Genesis. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And what Genesis is doing, Genesis is giving you the beginning of time. What John is doing here is he's going back before the creation. Now, he's going to come back to the creation in verse 3. But when he's talking here, he's going back before the creation. And he says, in the beginning. And so you got to ask yourself, what is the beginning? The beginning is as far back as you want to go. Okay? The beginning is as far back as you want to go. Because when he says here, in the beginning was the word, that word that he uses for was has a tense on it. And the tense is a durative imperfect. Now, I know that excites you on a Sunday morning to know that, wow, I did not know that that word was a durative imperfect. But let me explain what that means. When the Bible or the author here wrote and he used what we call a durative imperfect, it means continual action is what it means. We say he was there. We're speaking in the past tense. We're speaking of something that took place. This usage of the word was does not mean that. What this word here means is it means continual action. He was there. He always has been there and he always will be there. It speaks of his eternality of the fact that God has no beginning and God has no end. So what John is doing is He's beginning in eternity, whereas every other book in the Bible begins in time. It takes you to a place point in time. What John's kicking off and saying is the word is fully God and he always has been. He always will be. He will never be anything other than that. So he's backdating this all the way back. And he says, in the beginning, was the Word. And then he says, and the Word was with God. Now that word with, I've, I've spoken about that a lot in, in dealing with that verse too when we looked at the attributes of God. But this notebook, my notebook that I write my sermon notes in, is with me, okay? This Bible is with me. But that word with has a much fuller meaning than that. The word that is used there is the word pros, P-R-O-S. And when he says the word was pros, God, what he's saying is the word was in intimate fellowship or togetherness with God. The word actually means movement towards something. So it speaks of several things. It speaks of the fact that this word that was with God, was moving towards God, was in relationship with God. So it denotes distinction of person. That Jesus and the Father, that Jesus is not just an emanation of the Father. He is a separate and distinct person who is in relationship with the Father. He's pros, he's, he's together with him. He's in association with him. And being distinct and separate, you have the Father, Son, 
and the Holy Spirit, which constitute the Godhead, each being a distinct individual, but each in relationship with the other. So you have the perfect triune Godhead that existed at this time, and Jesus Christ, being a member of that Godhead, is a distinct person or part of the Godhead. Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, meaning the Father. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him, meaning they're in relationship together. That's what it's saying. Very clear, very distinct. Look at John 17, 5. This is Jesus' prayer, which is, this is really the Lord's prayer right here. 17, 5, I'm going to begin in verse 1. It says, Jesus spoke these words and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may, be, may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh that he, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself. And look at this. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. Amen. When I was dwelling in your presence, before anything existed, before there was time, before there was space, before there was material existence, we dwelt in perfect unison. And I want to be back in that same position that I was in. He was with God. He was face to face with God. He was interactive with the Father. And so all through Scripture, especially in the Gospel of John, this is going to be revealed to us. In the beginning was the Word, the Lagos of God. And the Lagos of God was with God. And the Lagos of God was God. Once again, he uses the word was there in the imperfect tense, which means it's eternal existence. Okay? He was with God. He has always been with God. And he always will be with God. There will never be a time that he is not. And then all through Scripture, he starts showing it over and over again. Look in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. We will see it in John 10. I'm going to begin in verse 24. And the Jews, I'll give you time to get there. John 10, 34. What did I say? I'm sorry. Let me back up. John 10, 24. 10, 24. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. In other words, no one could do those works except for God. That's what he's saying. 
but you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. That means essence. We're the same. All Jesus is, is he is the visible member of the Godhead. Prior to his incarnation, he's in a spirit form. And his incarnation, he takes on human flesh and he becomes a man. He takes on flesh so you can see him. You can't see God in your natural state. And I can't see God in my natural state. It would blind you. It would destroy you. So he veils his glory in a human body. And yet he fully explains the father to us. He shows us exactly who the father is. Do you think these Jews understood what he was saying? Verse 31, I guarantee they did. And the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Why? Because he's claiming to be God, folks. That's as clear as you can get as far as deity. I am the same as the Father. Look, if you would, at John 14. John chapter 14. And begin in verse 8. John 14, 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? In other words, I am full revelation of the Father. I'm showing you exactly who the Father is. We are the same. We are God. And I'm showing you that in visible form. And you're sitting here asking me to show you the Father. And this is addition. That's not in the Bible, but it's like, what else do you want? I'm demonstrating to you exactly who the Father is. How could you want more? Because we are the same. John 20 and verse 28. John 20, verse 28. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. What made Thomas say that? Look at the verse right before it. Look at verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord, my God. And he, he doesn't correct him. He said, you're exactly right. I am your master and I am God incarnate. 
So as we read verse one and as we read our passage, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And just remember that word word that word was is the imperfect tense and it means eternal existence. It means ongoing, no end to it. It's continual in its process. So we come to verse two and a lot of people look at verse two and say verse two is just a summary of verse one, which in fact is really not. Verse two is a separate verse and it's making a bold statement. It says he was in the beginning with God. Now the word there for he is the word hutas. And hutas means more than just he. I've got it up on the screen for you to where you can see how it's spelled. But the word hutas, as he uses there, could be translated this one. Okay? More so than a personal pronoun. So it would read like this. This one, and then an actual question is what? Which one? The word. The word. The word was in the beginning with God. And again, the word was there denotes continuous action. It's not finite in, in the way it's encompassed there. He, this one, was, is, and always will be with God because he is God. Continuous action. The Lagos was with God and the Lagos came to man. Look at verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word became, genomai, we'll look at it when we get there, but the word genomai denotes a precise, definite point in time. So you have this pre-existent God that has always existed from the beginning. He was there. And what beginning might that be? Wherever you want to begin, go back as far as you want to go back. He's always been there. And at a point in time, the word took on a human body. He became incarnate. He veiled his glory so you could see God walking around. You could visibly observe him in a human body. He became what we call the God man. Now that word genomai that's used there in verse 14 became is in the aorist tense, which means a decisive moment in time. So you have one word that speaks about him, talks about him eternally. Then you have another one that says, boom, at a point in time, he became a man. He took on a human body. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. So what are the implications of that? for us as far as believers today, the implications are this, that if it is God that the scripture is speaking of, and it is he, is, he is God, and he took on human flesh, then just like Jesus said, and whatever glory you give to the Son, you give to the Father. He said, if you dishonor the Son, you've dishonored the Father. Whatever you do in relationship with Jesus Christ, you do with the Father. So the implication comes when you talk about a gospel presentation, when someone rejects the person of Jesus Christ, they are rejecting who? God. They're rejecting God. 
And so what Jesus is showing is that he is the only way to God, because what you do with Jesus is what you do with God. And if you reject Jesus, then you've rejected God because Jesus is God. The way you receive God is you receive Jesus. The way you come into a relationship with God is you believe that Jesus is God. Let's look at a passage. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts, the fourth chapter. I want you to begin in verse 5. Acts 4, 5. Acts 4, 5. And and this is talking about Peter when he's going to speak to the Sanhedrin. And they've they've healed a man. And that's all the way back in chapter 3, verse 1 is where that story is. But they heal a man, and so they're brought in before the council. And it says, It came to pass on the next days that the rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them... In the midst, they asked, by what power or what name have you done this? Have you done this miracle? By what power, by what name have you healed this man? Now, think about this, folks. Caiaphas and Annas were both there at the trial of Jesus Christ. This is just a short time afterwards. We're talking basically 50 days afterwards. And all of a sudden, they're going in and they're standing right in front of the people that tried Jesus Christ. Do you think that would be intimidating? You better believe it would be. It'd be very intimidating. Let's see how he responds. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. See, he wasn't filled with fear. He wasn't intimidated. He was controlled by the Holy Spirit. He said to them, rulers, And the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to the helpless man, by what means he has been made well? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him... This man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders. Folks, that is as bold as you can get right there. He says, you're the people that crucified him. You're the people that rejected him. And it's by his name and by his power we've done this work. The stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, Jesus has full authority and only access to God is through the person of Jesus Christ. 
Scripture is very clear on that point right there. Look at 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. This is Paul writing to his disciple Timothy, and he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, put me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. What does it mean to be an insolent man? It means he had violent external explosions of wrath and anger. That his anger would be so bad, he was totally out of control. He was a person that would strike fear in the hearts of everyone that saw him. Oh, man, here comes Saul. You better hide. Because Saul would tear you to pieces. Saul would drag you out of a church service and kill you right in front of the church. That's who Saul was. That's who this man is right here. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He doesn't say I was chief back when I was doing my insolent activity, but right now as I stand in front of you, I'm the chief of sinners. How could Paul be the chief of sinners? Well, I think one very good reason, folks, is Paul wrote a good bulk of the New Testament. He had insight on God that far exceeded anyone in this room, myself included. He was so far advanced in his understanding and knowledge of God. And yet, what, what was his summation of himself? I'm the chief of sinners. Because, see, he knew in his own life that his evil heart, his evil flesh was sinning against God in spite of all the knowledge that he had. He said, I'm the worst of sinners because the more I know about God, the more I see my own sin. Amen. See, a mark of spirituality in a person is not that you see yourself as being better than everyone else. A true mark of spirituality is you see yourself as being the worst of all. That's, right. Amen. That's a true spiritual insight because it's being honest with what we are. Because we don't compare ourselves to other people. You compare yourself to God, and when you compare yourself to God and the knowledge you have of God, then you draw a conclusion of where am I with God? I am the chief of sinners. I am a rotten, horrible person. And though I won't say that publicly to people, that's really what I am. See, a spiritual-minded person sees their own depravity and evilness. And when we understand our own depravity and evilness, you know what? You become very cautious in trying to deal with it in the lives of other people. That's not how most religious people are. How are most religious people? I shared with Sunday school class. They want to get your life right. And they want to get your life right right now. And they are quick and very determined to do what? 
to point out every shortcoming that you have and every standard that you violated. What's Paul say? I'm the chief. I'm the worst of the worst. What does that tell? Well, you go over to Galatians and Paul says, you who are spiritual restore such a one that's fallen into sin with a spirit of gentleness and meekness, lest you also be tempted. How would you be tempted? You'd be tempted to think you're better than that. That old boy fell off. He fell off the wagon and got drunk this week. I told you he's no good. I told you he's no alcoholic and ain't never going to be nothing but an alcoholic. Sorry, old thing. Start looking at yourself in light of the presence of God and you will say, oh, must I be gentle with this person? Yes, they struggled in their addiction. But see, my addiction is acceptable addiction. My addiction is I'm just addicted to myself. Or I'm addicted to sugar. Or I'm addicted to donuts. I ain't addicted to alcohol. So that makes me bigger. And I sure ain't addicted to gossip, but I'm going to tell you a little more if you just hang on just a second. You see how foolish we are so many times? to where we will look down on other people and condemn them because we don't see ourselves in, in the presence of God. When you see yourself in the presence of God, you have nothing, I have nothing to boast of, save but the blood of Jesus Christ who has cleansed me and saved me and restored me and made me whole to where I can even speak the name of God. I can call upon that God. I can come into the presence of that God. And it's all because of what that God's done for me, not because of me. That's what Paul's saying. I am the chief of sinners. However, verse 16, for this reason, I obtain mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. I mean, God, you are merciful to Paul, and I see you're merciful to Paul. Surely you'll be merciful to me. I look at Paul's example, but look at this. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What's he say about Jesus? He is the King eternal immortal, invisible to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. The only way to God, folks, is Jesus Christ. And the reason that we have access to God through Jesus Christ is because he is God and he's the only one to come in the presence of God. You follow that? The only way you can come in the presence of God is you've got to be God. And the only way I can come in the presence of God is that that God pay the debt for my sin and gives me his righteousness and grants me the invitation to come into his presence also. To him alone be glory. Amen. Amen. The word existed in all eternity and he always will exist. But that word also became flesh. And when he became flesh, he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth.
Jesus is preeminent. He is overall because he has always been and he always will be. He is the Lagos, the full, clear picture of who God is. And to him alone is the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. We're going to have a word of prayer. And as your heads are bowed, where are you in your relationship with God? Because you, you can have a relationship with God today through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as the scripture told us this morning, took on a human body and lived here on earth and he alone died for your sin. He alone laid down his life for your sin, paid the debt for your sin, propitiated the wrath of God on your behalf. And your only hope of being with God is through God. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again? If you believe that, trust Him alone for your salvation. For there is no other name given by which men must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Trust in Him and Him alone. Father God, we thank You. We thank You for the gift of eternal life. We thank You for the blessedness of being in union and relationship with you through your son. Father, let us live our life in light of who you are. Be merciful and kind to those around us. For we are truly grateful for what you've done for us. Help us to go from here and live for you and enjoy the life that you've given us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.